The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do ask, as we just sang, we ask now prayerfully, would you show us Christ? Would you make him more clear to us this morning? Some aspect of his beauty more apparent. Some understanding of what he has done, what he has accomplished for us. Clear and more precious perhaps than it was. Show us Christ and show us Christ for us. You, Father, sent your Son into the world, as we've been reading about in in this Gospel. You sent him into the world and you sent him to become King and Savior. That is, King and Savior for us, certainly for your name's sake, but for the sake of us, your people. We say thank you for that and pray that you would show him to us and cause us to marvel and to worship and to rest, to rejoice. What you have done here is good, marvelous in fact, and cause us to see it. Lord, would you open this text to us? Would you help us to understand what is here and understand how it applies to us? Give me clarity in speech. Lord, would you please descend on this room in a way that quiets all distractions? Would you, Spirit of God, move in our hearts here to illumine your text, even now in this moment, to clear out sin that would be a barrier? Call us to set aside things that are distractions. Focus our attention and cause us to see him, to marvel at him, to rest in him, and to rejoice in him. Please do that, Lord. Give clarity to what I say. Give attention to our hearing. Build your church. Honor Christ and bless us, your people. It is in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A little bit of tinniness there, I think. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 4 and the final passage of the preliminaries in Luke's gospel. This is the end of the beginning. As we've seen, Luke takes a couple of sections. He takes one larger section to set the stage for John the Baptist and for Jesus by speaking of the details related to birth and childhood. Then he takes another second section to describe John as an adult. This is what we just saw in Luke chapter 3 with the depiction of the activities and the teaching, the ministry of John as he worked to prepare a people for the Lord. That was his assigned task. He baptized people in the Jordan River, teaching them, calling them to humble repentance before God, a turning to him, to God, a depending on him. And as we saw two weeks ago when we were last here in Luke, John also baptized Jesus during that time. Saw this last time we were in Luke, and that we also saw that was not Luke's focus. Luke mentioned it, but what he was really concerned to, to turn our attention towards was what happened after he baptized Jesus. What happened next? God stepped onto the scene in perceptible ways. Visible Holy Spirit, audible voice from heaven. Somehow the people saw the Spirit of God. God, the Spirit, is not normally visible, but they saw 
him in some way descend, fluttering, floating, alighting gently on Jesus, and they heard a voice from heaven. And what that sign and that voice both did was tell us something about this one. They're identifying that guy right there, that Jesus, saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. As we saw in the passage, both what happens, how it's described, what's said, has numerous ties to the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 2, talking about the son, and from other places, Isaiah 42, which talks about how there would be one anointed by the Spirit, one with whom God was well pleased. It gives him another name, though, the servant there. He is son and servant. Come to do what the original servant, Israel, could not do. He's come to be the true servant of the Lord, able to carry out the mission of the Lord as the Spirit rests upon him. What Israel was supposed to do, Jesus now picks up the mantle, and as the Spirit-empowered servant, the one with whom God is well-pleased, the beloved Son, he steps out to accomplish. You are my beloved Son. That was also the note struck in the genealogy, the last part of chapter 3 shows that Jesus in his lineage is indeed a son of Abraham. But more than that, his lineage goes back beyond Israel, goes back to be a son of all of the earth. He is not just of the race of Israel, he is of the human race at large. He is a son of Enos, a son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. There it is again. He is the beloved son with whom the Father is well pleased. He is the son of God. And that then becomes the theme in our passage this morning, Luke chapter 4. This last bit of preparation for Jesus circles around sonship. What he is as son and what he then makes possible for us as sons and daughters. This is the last bit of preparation. These verses 1 through 13 taken together are going to make this point. Here's my main point for this morning. Put in a sentence. And and may this be, as as you think about this, this is, this should be incredibly encouraging to you. If you understand what this sentence means, and I hope as we, as we work through the passage this morning, you, you come to understand some of what it means, pick it towards the end. If you understand what this sentence means, ah, life should cause relief and rejoicing in you. So here's the sentence. God sent his true son, so that we ourselves could become true sons and daughters. Amen. That is an awesome thing. Amen. God sent his true son so that we ourselves could become true sons and daughters. So let me read the passage. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke 4, 1 to 13. Jesus just had the Holy Spirit descend on him, and we are told the Spirit remains on him. Powerfully so. He comes away from the river, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, and still in verse 1, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Not just led by the Spirit into the wilderness, that too, of course, but the grammar tells us something a little more. This is ongoing led. The effect is, while in the wilderness, Jesus was continually led by the Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. Point being, all of this was planned by God, undergirded by God, and empowered by God. Jesus was taken into this, kept in this, and upheld in this, all by God. God is up to something here, not just Satan. This is not an accident. It is completely intentional. For 40 days, for exactly 40 days. Verse 2 refers to the days with this phrase. In verse 2 it says, And when they were ended, that is, when they were completed, he's talking about a set period of time such that that period of time could be finished, could be here's the beginning and could be ended, wrapped up fully carried out. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, exactly being tempted by the devil. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. So not yet, that's not yet talking about what we're about to see, those temptations. It means for the whole period of time, for all those 40 days, he was being tempted. Eating nothing, fasting, being tempted, and at their completion he was hungry, and then we get these particular statements. Verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Literally, son is front-loaded in the sentence. If son you are, we're talking about son here. That's been the issue. Okay, so, if son you are, and understand clearly, there's no uncertainty here. Satan knows him. And this is Satan himself. He's not unclear as to who this mystery man is in the wilderness here. He knows full well who Jesus is. He's using if in the way that we, I think as Bryant earlier said, if, if there are any manly men out here, he's trying to use that if in kind of a, a manipulative way. Like we might say, if you're a man, come help with the piano. If is not unclear, he knows. 
We might say since. Since you are the Son of God and you have great power, you should not have to hunger and suffer. So use your power and meet your need for food. And Jesus answered him from Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live on bread alone. And the second temptation, he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And that sentence there tells us there must have been something in the supernatural spiritual realm here because it doesn't say where he took him up to and to show him everything in a moment. Something, you know, when we, when we make a movie, we can use camera angles and fast-forward buttons and we can, we can show like things really quickly. But in some way, Satan showed Jesus everything at once, all the kingdoms of the inhabitable world flashed before Jesus' mind in some way that was attractive and enticing. So not just saying the word Rome, but showing him Rome. Not just saying Athens, but Athens. Imagine it, Jesus. All of the power and all of the glory and all of the authority of Athens, of Rome, I'm the prince of the world. I give it to who I want. You want it? You want it? You should have it since you are the son. You should have that. Look at you wandering around the desert. You can have it. Become my son. Become my servant. And I will give it to you here. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6. And as if Satan said to himself, okay, I see how this goes. You care what it says in the scriptures, okay. And he takes Jesus again, probably in some spiritual, supernatural sense, because literally it would be impossible for them to travel all the way to Jerusalem in this short time and then climb up onto the top of the temple. But in some way, in some, in some spiritual realm way, he takes him to this point, some place where to cast himself down would cause him physical harm apart from some supernatural intervention and says, jump. Jump. Since this is your father's house, he lives right here, and since you are his son and he cares for you, and as it is written, by the way, he will command his angels to protect you and not let you fall and strike the ground. Since that's what the scripture says, and since here is your father and you should be protected by him and, and cared for by him, jump and show it. Call out his care. Make it perceptible. He will command his angels. And he says, Deuteronomy 6 again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Those three temptations on the back of 40 days of temptation, this completed the temptations. Verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, there's the fullness of them, he left him until an opportune time, until a later date. So he had some better chance. This is the text. It's the temptation of Jesus, which in some way might cause us to wonder, what is, nobody else is even there. What does that have to do with us? Nobody else saw this. Nobody else heard him teach anything. There aren't any commandments in here. There isn't even any instruction given to any human beings at all. What does this have to do with us? Well, tons. That's going to be the second point. But the first thing it does is it shows us something marvelous about Jesus. 
So I'm going to make two observations here from this passage. One, Jesus, and then second, for us. Here's the first observation, the first point. God tests Jesus to prove that he is the true faithful son. God tests Jesus to prove that he is the true faithful son. Sometimes we read this passage, and this is a familiar passage. Many of us have read this here or in the other gospel accounts. We read this, and sometimes we are tempted to think of it as some kind of satanic ambush. That's kind of how spiritual attack happens in the world, happens to us. We're just walking along, minding our own business, and something challenging and troubling and drastic happens. That's surely what happened here, right? Jesus minding his own business, and Satan jumps him. No, not, not at all. This is not initiated by Satan. As we saw, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led into and then led all through the wilderness. This is God-initiated, God-controlled. It is God picking a fight. It is God summoning to the arena two would-be rulers, the prince of this world and the messianic king, and saying, let's do this. Here, have my son. Have him for 40 days, as much as you want. Work him. God the Son, dwelling in bodily form, is led into Satan's wilderness lair for a reason. He has come here to accomplish what Adam the Son and what Israel the Son could not. You got to see the continuity here in the larger story. Jesus, God the Son, will provoke and will face the attack of Satan and will prove that he is the true Son and in so doing will break the back of this rival ruler and forever destroy this rival kingdom. By remaining faithful to his father. We are meant to remember the reference to Adam. Adam comes right before the son of Adam, son of God. We're meant to remember that so that we realize he's, he, this is for all of humanity, but in particular, the strongest tie is to Israel. The strongest connection here is to ethnic Israel. The Old Testament story of redemption, the wandering in the wilderness, should be right front and center in our minds here. The Old Testament has many 40s. 40, 40 happens in a number of different places for a number of different things. But the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness is what's called to mind here. By wilderness, by 40, by hungering, and then especially by the fact that Jesus quotes his response to Satan's attempts to, to lure him are three quotes from Deuteronomy all in the context of the wilderness wanderings. This is Exodus part 2. Take two. What's going on here? In the coming of Jesus, God's Israel, the son of Abraham, has been called out of Egypt once again to set up a kingdom in a promised land. And Satan will try once again to derail that plan by tempting and causing the defection of God's Son. 
In the past, he tempted them and lured them and turned them away from God, caused them to reject the promises of God, and so in the wilderness they died. Israel died in the wilderness in the Exodus, like Adam died when he turned away from God in a garden. This is Satan's M.O. God cannot seem, so it seems, God cannot seem to find a faithful son on which he can build a people, a kingdom. Whenever he raises one up, Satan tempts him, leads him away, and then obligates God, that phrase is going to come up later, obligates God to destroy that son in wrath and judgment. So what is God to do? Satan's power seems to win as God's eyes, as he says in the Old Testament, roves to and fro over the earth looking for someone faithful, but none is found. What is he to do? He sent his own son, born to a woman, a son of Abraham, a son of Adam, the beloved son of God, sent him to earth, sent him to the wilderness, fasting and hungry and tempted for 40 days, and he holds him right there and invites Satan to come finish him off. And he tempts him in three paradigmatic ways. These are temptations that are common to man. They are really interesting temptations, and we will in following weeks touch on them in more detail, each of them. He invites him. He tempts him. He draws him out, Satan does. Hungry. You're hungry, aren't you? You could say, We almost could put that in quotes, really. He causes him in this moment to see and to sense his hungering. You are the son, and it is wrong for you to suffer and to hunger and to want. You should have. These are good and right desires, normal things. Food is is good and appropriate, given by God. You should have it. And this one you call father has abandoned you and left you here to hurt without any end in sight. You have waited and still what should be yours isn't. So make it happen. You have the power. Make it happen. Satisfy yourself. Feed yourself. And he's tempted in the area of honor and power and glory. You are the son All of the kingdoms of the earth, all of the kingdoms of the earth should be rightfully yours. To you is due all dominion and all authority and all honor and all glory. And here in this moment, you, the Messianic king, you are forgotten and humbled and alone. Psalm 2 is supposed to be true of you, but look. We both know this should be yours. Skip the pain and the suffering, and I'll give it to you. And lastly, he's tempted to assure his own safety and security. Call God's bluff and and make him come and rescue you. But in each of those, those categories of temptations, and those are the categories that we all face in all temptation in life, in each of those categories of temptation, unlike Israel and unlike Adam, unlike humanity, 
Jesus the Son says no. We have to see that what's really at the heart of each of those things is not just food, not just bread into the mouth, but faithfulness to God. This, it is right that I have bread to put into the mouth. That's right. God gives that. It's good. It's appropriate. But at this moment, he has not given it or has not given it in sufficient quantity. In whom does my faith rest? In my Father and in his will or in what I see and in what I feel? Where does, my, where does my faith rest? It is right and appropriate that the king be the king. But at, in this moment, at this time, the father has not yet delivered the kingdom to the son. So in whom does my faith rest? In, in what I know to be right and in what I want and what I should have? Or what God has in this moment willed? Which is it? Where does my faith rest right now? It is appropriate that the children of God be protected, be sheltered under the wings of this good Savior, this good God. But in this moment, he has left me alone, twisting in the wind, so it may seem, vulnerable to satanic attack. In whom should I place my trust? In my own power or in God who reigns over me? That, that is at the heart of each one of these temptations. They come at Jesus through reasonable means, through a desire to feed oneself and through a desire to be honored and through a desire to be safe. Those are right and good and holy. But the question behind all of them is, when? By whose decision? In whom do you trust? And where human beings Jew and Gentile alike, where human beings constantly and tragically say, I will trust in what I see and in what I feel and in what I taste and what I long for. Jesus says, no. What my Father wills, that is life. My Father is to be worshipped with all that I am. And I will not test him. I will not call him into question. I will not doubt him, but I will faithfully submit humble myself beneath his mighty hand and trust that in due time he will lift me up. This is the faithful, true son that God, that we have been looking for forever. And he's come. He's come and he willingly put himself in this place, beneath, beneath, beneath. And then at the end of 40 days of suffering and, and trouble, he then faces Satan himself and says, I will remain faithful to my Father. This is the Son. which should cause us, as we sang earlier, show us Christ. It should cause us to say, awesome. This is indeed, it, it's a man. He really hungers. He really fears. He knows what it's like to sleep in the wilderness by himself at night for 40 days. He's a, he's a real guy, and he is God. It should cause us to look at him and to marvel at him and to 
to worship him. This is the faithful one. This is the one on whom God is building the kingdom. This is the one who can defeat Satan. And we see it right here. Beautiful. It should cause us to, to, even if that was it, if that was just all, it should cause us to say, glory be to your name. You were holy and you were good and you were righteous. You were God in flesh, Jesus. This is the faithful, true son. But there's more than just only seeing this about Jesus' identity because this matters tremendously, deeply for us. Which is what leads me to the second point. The triumph of this true son makes us true sons and daughters of the Father. So here's I'm going to try to draw out what that means for us. It is, it is very easy for us to only stand off to the side and perhaps it stirs our hearts to marvel at him and to maybe kind of like we watch some, some great person do something great, say, nice job, way to go. But this means everything for you. And what happens... Worship in us, thankfulness in us, joy in us is stirred and, and fanned into flame, enlightened, lifted up as we see something marvelous for us. This is something marvelous, and here's how it is for us. Jesus, tempted by Satan, tested by God. God tests him in this to show something. What we see here is utter faithfulness, utter dependence, utter trust, submission to the will of God, even when humbled, even when left alone, even when seemingly abandoned, even when surrendered to attack. This is the righteous son. Therefore, we can know, we can read this sentence and say, aha, it is true. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Which is why the verdict rendered in verse 13 is, the temptations are over. He is the one. And very next verse, what happens from here on out is Jesus then undertakes his ministry. He begins, he walks forward in the power of the Spirit in the Galilee, verse 14, and he begins. He's the one. We read that, and another way we could put all of that is to say, Jesus is righteous and therefore there is a gospel. Jesus is righteous and therefore there is a gospel. Jesus has righteousness to give to us, faithfulness to give to us to clothe us in. When you place your faith in Christ, if you're a Christian and you've placed your faith in Christ, when you surrender your heart to Jesus, he puts onto you something. He takes onto himself your sin, takes that to the cross, but he puts onto you something, his righteousness credits it to your account. 
God now looks at you, you adopted child. He looks at you. Think of yourself here. God looks at you with this very same righteousness on you. As if you, yourself, were just this faithful. As if you, yourself, were just this dependent. As if you, yourself, had just this same amount of integrity to God and resistance to Satan's attacks. Clung just this tightly to your Father in heaven. Jesus did this, and this is what has been credited to you as if you did it. As if. This is what breaks the power of Satan over you. The power of Satan over you as a person consists in this. He has great power to approach you, to lure you, to lay you low, to kill you in the desert by drawing you away from God into sin and then justly obligating God to strike you down in wrath for for your sin. That's Satan's power over you. To lure you, to draw you into sin, and then to summon the police and say, get him. To summon the judge and say, execute him. Sinner that he is. And the just judge must. That's Satan's power over you. The power to lure you, to make you guilty, and to obligate you before a just judge judge for condemnation. That has been broken. That power is no more because now Satan lures you and even if and when you sin and he summons the just judge guilty, condemn him, all he has left, all the accuser can do is, is, is assert your guilt and the father looks at you and sees you clothed in this righteousness and says, there I behold a true son in whom I delight, with whom I am well pleased because he is righteous, she is righteous in my sight, holding fast to me, not with your own merits, but with Christ's. Satan frustrated then can only say, But you should. No, I shouldn't. I already did condemn that. I already condemned that in Christ. This one is clothed in righteousness. This one is my son, my daughter, pleasing to me. The power of Satan has been broken over you in this way. This is is extremely significant. If you will consider this, who you are, You, not because of anything you have done, who you are, your your identity, your ontology, what your being is, what your being is, is a beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Sure, you're a sinner. Of course you're a sinner. Does God like sin? Of course not. We must pursue righteousness. We must pursue lived out holiness. Certainly, of course do you realize, though, that you stand as a son, as a child with whom he is 
as pleased as he possibly can be. Child of God. Because of this. This righteousness, this resistance, this holiness is what has been put onto your account. There is a gospel, in other words. The power of Satan to condemn you and destroy you is broken. It is broken. And you, Christian, you are forgiven. You are a child. You are an heir. Which is awesome. And which you don't believe. I'm going on about this. And everybody, I, I imagine, to some degree, is saying, uh-huh, mm, mm, mm. you don't believe it. I don't believe it. Hopefully, prayerfully, you, you do believe it, but there is something here that we have to attend to and grab a hold of strongly because we often continue to live sub-Christian lives because we don't believe what I was just talking about. The, oh, would you... Would you Oh, Spirit of God, would you cause this people to rest in this and to rejoice in this? If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a son, a daughter, with whom he is well pleased in whom he delights. He is your father. You have one who is omnipotent and omniscient, who is full of grace and love as your father, and he will never leave you nor forsake you, even though still right now you have many years left to walk through the wilderness. He's walking through it with you, not apart from you. How often we will face these three trials as broad categories. It is common to man. It, it is our life right here. It, these things are, are us. In fact, the Spirit of God will lead us into them. Not to tempt us, but to test us. He disciplines those he loves, and he wants to refine us and grow us, and he uses trials in that regard. And he wants to testify to the world that is watching what it looks like, what the true humanity looks like, what it looks like to be a person whom God owns. He wants to show that. He wants to grow us, and he wants to test us. So he will himself even lead us into and walk through these things with us. But we will know them for certain in this life. And you have a Father who is with you straight through it. What are we to do then? Well, like Jesus, led by the Spirit, believe God more than your grumbling stomach and your hurt pride and your fearful eyes. What temptations do you face? Temptation, consider the first one for a moment. To take matters into your own hands and feed yourself. Maybe not literally. 
but to satisfy legitimate desire. Something right. Maybe food, maybe literally food, or, or relationship is often one I think we, we struggle with. Sensual pleasure. Good things made by God. Given to us. But perhaps right now, not given to you, or not given to you in the degree that you want. What is it? What do you hunger for? What do you desire? That's right. That's good. What is going on in that hungering, in that longing, in that desiring? Same thing that was going on for Jesus. A big question is being asked of you. In whom will you place your faith? And what you see, what you can touch, or what you can't touch, and what you want? Or in a father who with you has determined right now at this moment, I will not give that, or I will not give that in, in the quantity this, this child of mine desires. Which one, yourself or your father? How do you fight that? How do you wrestle with that? By in front of your, by, by holding up and looking at in front of your eyes this great truth that this one is your father. You are his child. He will not abandon you. That, that's, the whole, that's the whole hook in the temptation. You should have, and you don't have, and you won't have. He has left you. Child of God. No. He has not left you. If you are a son, if you are a child, you are an, are an heir, he owns you. He will not let go of you. He is with you. Doing I don't know what. We don't know what. But doing. Present. You are a son who has a great father who knows what he's doing. In his will is where your life is found. When tempted to take a shortcut to glory or to power, and we should. We are the people of God. We saw last week, we are headed to a great city where the passage ended, where we will reign with him forever. Honor and glory and authority belongs to the king and to us, his people. That is right and appropriate, and we can't get it now, can we? In whom do you place your trust? In a father who is with you and over you and knows what he's doing. Who has said, I will put the shoe on the other foot and the lowly will reign one day and every knee will bow one day. That is true. When you are hard-pressed and fearing for safety and security, he will protect you. He is your shelter in the storm. 
What I'm getting at here, as we move quickly through each of those temptations, is that behind all of them is the question that gets at the second aspect of Satan's power over us. The first is a legal aspect where he draws us into guilt and then, as it were, obligates God to condemn. That power has been broken. But the second power he works on us is a power of persuasion, of invitation, of lure, that comes to you and says, you are forsaken. You don't have, you lack, and you won't get it. You have been forgotten. Some, something wrong has happened. Perhaps he forgot you here. Perhaps he doesn't like you anymore. Perhaps you have angered him in some way. Perhaps he is against you. But something's not right. Something needs to be fixed here. You must go fix it. You yourself, forget him. That's the power of persuasion, of enticement, of lure. Never mind the facts. What I'm getting at then in the end is the Spirit's ministry to you in a significant way is the ministry of assuring you that you are a Christian, of assuring you that you are a son of a good father who has not forgotten you and has not misplaced you and is not against you. Wait a minute. So what you're talking about there at the end is, is that this is all about like assurance of faith? Well, I'm sure I'm a Christian. I don't think you are sure that you're a Christian. Are you sure that you're a Christian? And understand what I'm saying here. I, I, am, not, I am not calling you to question your salvation. I'm pointing out that you question your salvation in the wrong way. I'm pointing out that you don't believe it nearly as much as it's true. When God saved you, when he reached into your life and changed you, you were changed. He owns you. He is with you. Every temptation you face calls that into question. It has from the very beginning. Is God really good? That was the first temptation. That's the heart of every one of them since then. Is he really good? And is he really good for you? And the answer is yes. Because I am a Christian. Because I am a son, a daughter. This is the work of the Spirit of God in individual Christians, in you. The Spirit of God illumines many wide-ranging truths to us, helps us to understand the Scriptures indeed. The Spirit of God communicates to us the presence of God, 
Indeed, many things the Spirit of God does, but at the heart of it, what the Spirit, and I pray what He will do, what He must do, what we must seek for from Him, is the work in your heart that convinces you, I am His. He will never leave you. You have what you need. You have the one you need. In the face of that, every temptation seems empty. Go get what you need. I already have it. He won't give it to you. Yes, of course he will. You are disrespected. I am an honored heir. You are unsafe, unsecure. I I sit in the hand of the omnipotent Father. What are you talking about? I am safe, and I am honored, and I am provided for. Maybe not as I would like in this moment. I don't know what I really need in this moment. But he does. He is good, and he has me. What are you talking about, Satan? The Spirit of God is what works in your heart to convince you of who you are in Christ. An heir and a son, a daughter. This is at the heart of what it means to preach the gospel to yourself day in and day out. To preach to yourself what has happened to me. The righteousness of Christ credited to my account so that forever the verdict of God over me is righteous. Just this righteous. Just this righteous. And then, because of that, forever, the bank account is wide open and the table is set and I am invited in. You have him because he has you. And you have what you need and you are safe. And from that then, from that we stand up and walk through the wilderness, not abandoned, often facing trial and temptation. But do you, do you understand, this is so important, do you understand that that's the heart of the gospel, what has happened to you, what God has done for you, and that then is how you fight against sin and temptation. Not with willpower. Certainly, we must exercise our wills. But we fight by setting our minds on Someone who has claimed us and who is with us and who meets every need of ours. Preach that to yourself in the power of the Spirit every morning until you believe it. God has sent His true Son, faithful, to make us true sons and daughters also to make us in our position His, and then to empower us in our walking, our daily condition, to walk as His, faithful to Him, remembering our Father in heaven and not enticed by false false offers and empty hopes. People of God, may the Spirit of God rest on you and convince you that you actually are a Christian. You actually are a son. You actually are a daughter. And being one, you have him, you have what you need. You have a Father in heaven who is with you on earth. 
yours son, yours daughter. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this work of Jesus. I thank you for what it shows us about him and what it has accomplished for us. And I pray, please, Father, would you... Perhaps there are individuals here, Lord, who find themselves burdened, lured, tempted in in particular challenging ways. Would you speak perhaps to certain individuals in a powerful way even right now You are father to them. They are child to you. That you see them as righteous, clothed in this righteousness of Christ. Assure them, give them faith like that of Jesus, that you, Father, will not leave a son whom you love. Assure them of that. Convince them of your nearness. Convince them of your wisdom and your timing. Your wisdom in the giving of gifts. Your sufficiency in the midst of trial and temptation. Convince them, please. Spirit of God, persuade your people of these truths. Press them deep into their hearts. All of us. We look to you. We need you. We ask you, Lord, even now as we take into our hands these these elements from communion, would you remind us of righteousness given to us and of sin taken from us, sin atoned for on the cross. Remind us of that. Assure us of your covenant love for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.